Hello and welcome to Quinescast, Scotland's feminist arts podcast. My name is Hannah Lavery. And I'm Caitlin Skinner. We are your hosts for this, the fifth episode in our series, and today's theme is home. On each episode, we invite some of Scotland's leading feminist writers, poets and playwrights and musicians to respond to our theme. Today, we're joined by folk guitarist and singer Jen Butterworth, novelist and TV writer Kerry Hudson, poet Marjorie Lotfi, and playwrights Alison Woodhouse and Tim Barrow. Quines Cast is brought to you by feminist theatre company Stella Quines in association with the Travis Theatre, Edinburgh International Books Festival and Jupiter Artland. So, Hannah, this is our final episode in the current series of Quinescast. We will be back in January with a special bonus episode, but for now, this is our final kind of full episode. And I remember you saying earlier in the series that home was the theme that you were most excited about, maybe the one that you were most interested in. Is that because you're a bit of a homebody? Is is home something that's really important to you? Yeah, and I think the work of making a home is um, become increasingly important to me. The need, I think, to have somewhere to retreat to and feel safe, you know, feels sometimes it's like being the work of my life in some ways. And it's not work that we value. So I think I was really interested in that. But also, I just think home is such a rich topic and there's so much to say about it. Um, Incredibly political, incredibly relevant to the moment we're living through. I'm really interested and how our participants respond and excited about hearing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've loved all the themes we've done, but yeah, this one probably does feel really important to me. Yeah, and we do have a really brilliant um, lineup of guests who are going to respond to the theme. And I think one of the things I'm really aware of is that we do in this episode really lean into the idea of the personal as political, which is such an important feminist idea, such an important theme, the history of the women's movement and the feminist movement, that your domestic life, your home life is political, it is connected to how the world is. And it's important to elevate that to the status of politics, to, to, for it to be part of the debate on our nationhood and how we want to be. So, And I feel like in this episode, those ideas are woven together quite tightly throughout, actually. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. So unlike the other episodes in this series, we didn't record this one in front of a live audience. Feels kind of right that our episode about home was recorded at home. So um, yeah, you're being welcomed in, everybody. And we're going to start with some music from the wonderful, glorious Jen Butterworth. Thinking of you written in blue 
What a fantastic way to open Quine's cast. Uh, thank you. And we will have more from Jen Butterworth to close out to the end of our show. Really looking forward to it. And for every episode, we invite a provocation piece to get us going. So we invite an author or a writer to write something that really gets us thinking about the theme, gets us asking questions, gets us going. And for this episode, we have the super inspiring, provocative author and TV writer, Kerry Hudson. I'm just turned 42. I've had 43 homes. Not counting sofas and hostels and spare rooms of better off pals wedged in by their utility rooms, staying for a few weeks or months, swimming against the quick rough tide between these 43 slippery stepping stones. In childhood, High rises with thick coils of orange nylon rope by the window in case of flames. Tenements where men in balaclavas holding crowbars knock politely and wait patiently at my neighbour's door. Rooms with metal bunk beds in halfway houses full of broken souls hastily pieced together and ousted from prisons and psychiatric hospitals. Caravans with every surface softened by the salty Northumbrian sea air. There was a hotel with mini cornflake boxes and pink shag pile carpet where we were made to leave between the hours of nine and five. And a council flat where someone was shot outside my bedroom window and I woke to police tape flapping in the airdrie wind like celebratory ribbons. There were ones in adulthood that signalled a happier precarity. A series of flats in East London, interchangeable with their cheap laminate floors, cold white walls, that Ikea chair everyone has, and squeaky black fake leather sofas. I moved in financially necessary ever wider circles until I found myself in Saigon in Vietnam. In a room of a family home down an alley where I was woken by a free-roaming rooster pecking after hens. And then in Lisbon, where I lived in Grassa, the gap in the front door letting in the sounds of the neighbourhood children and cockroaches the size of small mice. In Buenos Aires, there was a dilapidated art deco fat of a dead artist, a stone's throw from Congressa where walking to the supermarket to buy steak and Diet Coke meant kissing every cafe owner on the cheek on the way. Next, a tiny flat in a 1970s block with an even tinier Christmas tree twinkling out at the beach of Costa de Caprica, a working-class seaside town where I woke to the sound of waves and could be swimming in the winter sea within 10 minutes of waking. A Whitechapel sublet with chic Italians, with peroxide from the hairdressers below scorching your nostrils and an aluminium baseball bat propped by the stairs to ward off evil spirits. In Sarajevo, I lived in a wooden shack where the call to prayer from the mosque swooped up the hill and warned me through the chill of a deep depression in that rainy October. I had a tiny Bangkok condo with a single hot plate and a 60-foot swimming pool. And then our 1930s Prague apartment that was called Mali Berlin, Little Berlin, because it was where the occupying Nazis lived, but we tried to forget that. 43 homes, and each time the feeling of sand slipping under my feet, of being so close to being pulled under each time the tide pulling me on, each time terrified, I would lose my footing. Whatever else I have done to create the foundations I wasn't born with in my life, stable housing has eluded me. And when you grow up, 
with suitcases in the hallway onto a National Express coach that night. And the next morning, idling outside phone boxes while your mum calls around B&Bs. Listening to a tattoo of, do you take DSS? Well, fuck you too, slam. When every place is interchangeable and you learn to sleep with the smells and shouts and sadnesses of so many strangers. When you are a resilient kid who moulds themselves to whatever reality is presented, but learns to dress it in imagination, then it feels natural to do so in adult life too. A rootlessness that you can fool yourself into believing is weightlessness. And if my friends joked that I didn't move house, but just filled my pockets with my possessions and walked out the door, I take that as a mark of honour. A new neighbourhood, a new someone else's mattress as another notch on my someone else's bedpost. But eventually we all come home. And I sit here in a rust-coloured tenement in Glasgow, 30 minutes and a world away from that other tenement close with its polite crowbar-wielding visitors who heard the dress code was balaclava. 30 minutes too from the bedroom window rattled by gunshots, decorated as though it was someone's birthday with police tape. I came home because I became a home myself. My wee boy nestled in the warm water of my womb, feet tucked under the roof of my ribs, a squatter who seemed like he would never move. But he did, and when he did, I discovered I was still his home, my arms and smell and voice. More than ever, I was home for him. And I couldn't keep stumbling from one slippery stepping stone to another. I wouldn't even dream of asking him to cling on to me when I tried, as my own mother had, to keep us out of the freezing and ferocious tide. And so we all came back. I came home, my precious lodger with me, back to the streets where I am tethered down by memory, language, kindness and kin. No, not tethered or weighed, but held. I am held by this new old home of mine as I too hold my son. My wee boy will have known four homes by the time he is four. But I hope this one will be his last until he's grown and steps out to test the water himself. He'll wear away parts of these rooms, scroll on the walls, stain the carpets, and know every creak, crack and cranny. I came home to give my son a home. In Glasgow, I reached the other back, my own dear green place, finally. Kerry Hudson there in that piece her work is just so beautiful, like the images that she creates on that story of her 43 homes in 42 years are just amazing, so evocative, taking us right up to the idea of that she came home when she became a home. Like what a gorgeous piece of writing. It's just so moving. Yeah, that definitely resonated to me, that idea. I mean, I think when you asked me earlier about being a homebody, I was thinking about that idea of homebody and actually I definitely resonated with that thing about becoming a mother and then that desire to make a home and to make a stable home. And I think what Kerry always does is that with her work, which is so powerful and revolutionary, is that she offers a narrative that is so unheard. I was just thinking about when I was listening to that about, you know, the idea that in the society that we all grew up in one place and one secure place. So my question was, how many people really have that? How much of that is a fantasy? And how damaging is that, that that's the kind of perception that we all carry, that there's this kind of fantasy family or this fantasy childhood where everyone's growing up in this really one secure home? Totally. That, that, that is a, and that's not the experience of so many people. And I love what she said there that in, in her sort of early adulthood, she was maybe kidding herself that, that rootlessness was weightlessness. And that actually not having those roots was liberating and free and, and that feels really true. But that like later on, I guess her, her realizing that actually maybe it wasn't and me needing to return to those roots, that that was the thing that she needed in order to root herself in order to become a woman. Yeah. I think, I think that's really powerful. We talk so much about resilience as this wonderful thing. 
We're so resilient. You know, and I just think to myself, actually, what resilience is, is a flight or fight response. It's stress, I think. When we talk about resilience, it helps us survive, but actually it doesn't get to the core. Like, I think we we shouldn't have to be in a state of resilience, especially in our childhood. We carry that insecurity, I suppose, for the rest of our lives. And how important a sense of home, maybe it's not about one place, but a sense of belonging somewhere, whether that's within a family or whether that actually that gives you this this rootedness or this confidence or this this something that you carry with you forever. This feels like it's a really good moment to um, bring in our discussion group. And so I, if this is your first time listening, <laughs> then we have a discussion group that come in to every podcast and that contribute and respond to the theme. Um, we have some of the most incredible women as part of this group that have come from a range of different backgrounds and experiences um, and fields such as medicine and art and music. We have activists and social workers and we brought them together. We gave them some of the questions that arose for us around this theme and we just said, have a conversation. Through this podcast, you'll hear little clips from that conversation and our discussion group um, includes Lisa George, Talat Jacob, Amon Apple. Carrie Lunen and Leslie Orr. So I'm going to hand over to our wonderful discussion group. In early adulthood, where you maybe not established your own home and you're moving and maybe moving from one share flat to another or um, and home is still at that point in time, sort of parental family home for a lot of people. But with the young people I work with, a lot of them don't have that to go back to. So in Scotland, there's been this move towards continuing care, which is providing the, well, it's the right for young people to stay where they are until they're 21. But even that, I'm thinking that's so, it's far too young to not have a home to go back to beyond the age of 21. I mean, and people do, carers, but particularly when young people have been in foster care, individual foster carers will have kids stay on or they'll have them back for dinner and have that sense but for a lot of people it's just there's this cut off it's just like now you're on your own that's you in the world and the average age of people becoming independent and supporting themselves and living alone in the rest for everyone else in Scotland is 26 now but if you're a young person who's had all that disruption of being in care it's 21. I'm not independent and I've had so much support and I've been so stable in my life, lived in the same home my whole life and so I would have been kicked out a year ago. There is no way. You wouldn't have had any right to stay a year ago. I suppose if you'd had really lovely caterers, they might have said, no, you can stay until you're ready. Or if they could afford to have you stay without getting paid for it, which is the other thing. Because for some foster carers, they need need that income. It's part of how they support themselves. Um, And because there's no right to it. It's really interesting that... During the pandemic and COVID-19, and there's no no surprise, we were told that home is safe. So we were told, you know, stay at home, don't, you know, go, go out if you can work from home. But actually, there's a significant number and largely women for whom home is not safe. Home is the last place that's safe, right? So I think it's uh, one in four women experience domestic abuse at some point in their lifetimes. I think it's three women a week die at the hands of a current or ex-partner across the UK. So, uh, you know, I remember thinking a lot about that messaging, about stay at home, be safe, about how that makes absolutely no sense for so many people. Like that's the the only time that they perhaps felt safe was when they or the perpetrator went to work, left the home, or they were able to go out somewhere. If we're talking about home as being about security and safety and well-being and that feeling of respite or whatever that might be actually the physical space is not what often makes that because for many the physical space is a space of harm i think that was a wonderful discussion to overhear i always feel like we're just sort of flies on the wall so many of our discussions it's like we've come to a point we realize that so much of this is what we value in society who we value in society and how we organize our communities and how we and our services and you opened this discussion by talking about home is political and home is a feminist issue and for me absolutely at least describing at the, at the beginning about like when you leave care and then and then feeling that like you kind of don't have a home to go back to that kind of i feel like that never leaves you so my dad grew up in a care home and he's now in uh, because of his health he's now looking at going back into a residential care setting 
And that's really difficult for him, like to have left an institution, to have left care, and now to be at the end of his life and having to go back. And so home remains really important to him. And, and I mean, and, and having that sense of security, that sense of space of my own space that is mine feels, I think, I, I just feel like I can see because of his history, it feels extra challenging. It feels extra important to him because he's lived with that insecurity growing up. Mm, that must be really painful. And also just that idea about institutional care and the varying quality of that and the access to good institutional care, which, I mean, again, we've touched on this and I really think that we should we should have a whole episode about care and, and what it is to care in the society because it feels that there is there's so much to say about there about the unpaid care work, but actually the care that's available and the quality of it and the consistency of it. And I think both sort of the care at the end of life, but also the care of young people and children, it's there is something really important there that to discuss and to explore. And needs to be a priority. Absolutely. And in a feminist society, it really would be a priority, certainly more than it is. Okay, so shall we move to our next item then? Yeah, let's do that. So for every Quine's cast, we invite a playwright to create a short play inspired by our theme. For Home, we have two writers who collaborate and write together, and they're also going to be performing this play. So they are Alison Woodhouse and Tim Barrow, and they are here performing their play Home. And that will be followed by another clip from our excellent discussion group. Ten minutes we got, right? Ten minutes. Ah, the jaded glamour bus station. Has anyone... Did you see the driver? Ah, I mean... You you don't have to do that. What? Language is littered with sight illusions. I'm not offended. Raymond, the driver, he'll let me know when he's finished his trial. Where are you headed? Sorry, do you think you know? I'm off to Uig. Lochmaddy Ferry. You? I hate silence. (laughs) Me too, but I'm not going to fill it with any wittering. Apparently, we can share more with a stranger in 10 minutes than with people we love. You wouldn't be that lucky. You're Abigail Gillis, a writer. You look lost. Like you're trying to decide whether to get back on that bus or not. I know what your next book is. Who knows what my next book is? A thrilling deep dive into the personal, spiritual and psychogeographical. Yeah, who would care about me whittering on about that? Killer title. Home. How do you know that? Ironic name. I suppose. Yes, I'm homeless. My landlord kicked me out and I've nowhere to go. What's for you in the Hebrides? I'll find out when I get there. I just needed to escape north. You should have got bus 258. Why? It's in your seventh book. But I've only written five. Who are you? Why did your landlord kick you out? He wanted to turn it into an Airbnb. Get your revenge, savage in literature. No chance. There's no possibility of work now. No purpose, no home. Home was the place where I was most independent. There was, it was small enough for me to find out where everything was and big enough for me to be able to work. I even loved the creaking floorboards and rattling pipes. It's only happened twice before, having somewhere to belong. The house I've just left and somewhere else. Where else? When I was 15, we stayed with my aunt all summer. She had this holiday home near Drumna Drocket. I read Dickens and Brontes and swam in Loch Ness every day. It was cold and terrifying at first, but in the end I grew to love it. That was home. Only too briefly. Go on. What? You're about to ask, have you ever had the thing you love most taken away? Have you? You know I have. I'm Max. Max? From your book, The Rowan Tree. But you're a fictional character. Work all my life to publish my poems and in the end, destroy my work because it had no merit, no purpose, meaning. You can't be Max. You, you sound too old. What do you expect? You wrote me ten years ago. Prove it. All my tears dried up and turned to sand. 
fell in a pile at my boot. The wind lashed my eyes, gritted my cheeks. I clung to memories. If anyone can make bad poetry. Originally, you were calling me Gordon. Max was classier, sophisticated, and reminds you of a boy you knew. What do you want? I spied an opportunity. What? Don't destroy what you love. You don't know what I love. I'm part of your consciousness, Abigail. It's just fiction. I was school. Crap. Why? Because they didn't know what to do with me. There was one teacher who believed that the only way to make people comfortable was for everyone to stand in a row one by one and for me to feel their faces. Was anyone else blind at your school? Yeah, one girl, also an Abigail. We were lumped together. But after a while, we realised that we never really liked each other. What happened to her? Oh, she hanged herself. I'm joking. I think she works for Amazon now. It happened ever afterwards, finding myself with people who were deemed to be my community, but I just never clicked with. I can't blame other people because I do it too. Why? Because that's how the world works. Everyone needs to find a tribe. So what's wrong? It doesn't work. I don't have a tribe. What would you do with one? Make some noise, start fires, run things. Had an interview once. Hi, Abigail. Thanks for coming. Uh, do you need anything? Like what? Oh, uh, an interpreter or, or uh, an assistant. And would it make you more comfortable if I did? No, no. Let's crack on, shall we? Why would you like to be director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival? Because no blind person has ever been the director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and I think it's about time. I didn't get the gig. So I started a book group, because that's what writers do, right? But it's filled with people I just couldn't click with. One man always makes a point of telling me jokes about disabled people. Does he ask you if that's all right? Thanks, they're funny. Someone wanted to adapt one of my books once. Hi, Abigail. I'm a big fan of your work and I'd be thrilled to adapt your latest book for the state. Oh, that's great. It's really exciting. And would, would you like me to be in rehearsals with you? Oh, uh, but how will you see it? Well, I won't, but I'll still be able to hear it. Ah, uh, um, perhaps. To make things equal, we could turn out the lights for the actors too. Do the whole thing in the dark. I never had a home until I started writing. The physical space was just somewhere where I could work. But then it became home. The bricks and mortar did mean something. Now my, my place, my purpose has been taken away. Who I am. But you can work anywhere. There's your machine now with everything on it. I, I don't... But you're a writer. No, I'm really not. I'm, I'm just kidding myself and other people. I'm no good. Well, maybe, maybe I'm mediocre or average. But the only reason I'm published at all is because someone took pity on me. You're no good. No. Your work doesn't matter. No, so might as well destroy it. What? Because it's a waste of time. It's built on lies. I'm a fraud. Why? Because that's what blind people are encouraged to believe. That everything we achieve is tainted by pity and preferential treatment. When you heard us together, we're a herd of frauds and charlatans. Do you wish you could see? No. Why not? Because I wouldn't be me. Who are you? Figure it out, right? I do. I put it all down. I'm never stuck for words, ideas, wild schemes, and extravagance. A legion of words forever marching. Dead of night dreaming, the coffee machine wanderings, the cold morning dread, everything gets in. Thus you calm the clamour? Look, it's never calm. Every day is just exhausting. They won't stop. The words just keep marching. Without writing, you'll have nowhere to put them. On and on they'll come. How can I ever find any space for me? I don't know. When will there be peace? I don't know. So where do I go? There must be something better. 
better than Fort William bus station. If I destroy the work, it's the end of something, but then something else can begin. Or you make a desert. And call it peaceful? Don't do what I did. You'll create a void that can never be filled. But it'll be mine. Why do you write? Because I must, I told you. Yeah, yeah, but you also said you love it. And what use is love without a home? Or somewhere to swim. How will I find a new one? How will I find what I need? Max? Are you there? Oh, come on, don't vanish on me now. Oh, typical classic Max always takes the easy way. I can't just create a new home, I can't. Home is... No one tells you where your home is, it's a second. Home can be where I am. Home is wherever I am. Excuse me, Abigail S. Raymond. That's me have my dinner. Do you want to hand to the bus? No, it's all right. Still got a few minutes in. Heading him? Uh, I, I don't know. I thought you are. You've got that look about you. Raymond, thanks for your help, but I'm not getting on the bus. You sure? You're booked on to Uick. I'm sure, but there's somewhere else I must be. Can I get a bus to drum a drop it from here? Aye, but you'll be waiting a wee while. Oh, grand. I need to start swimming. It's a very evocative question, though, isn't it? When you say to someone, where's home? It's a, it's rarely a straightforward answer because <laughs> people are often like, well, home is where I grew up um, or home is where I have run away from and now where I live and I have created my community. So I would still say home is not where I've lived for the last 10 years. I'd still say home is the northeast of Scotland and I've not lived there since I was 18. So there's something really interesting about that for me is, you know, is it because that was where I spent my, you know, my, my childhood and my formative years and where I feel that people have known me for long enough that it doesn't really matter about what happens after that because they liked me for who I was then <laughs> or something. And maybe that just changes the longer you're away from somewhere because I guess you become maybe more transient once you leave. But then again, I was lucky I didn't really move around much when I was a child. I look at people who have for whatever reason, either because they're, you know, in part of military families or they're, you know, just they're having to move for work or whatever it was, they have a very different answer for that. They can't really pinpoint where is home. Where have you felt like you belonged at maybe critical periods in your life? Where were you when you felt safe from a crisis might be something that you feel like is is home, right? And it goes back to that idea about community that we've spoken about. And there's places that I've worked that's felt a little bit like home because I got to be feminist and political whereas at home it's kind of small c conservative sometimes I have to put a little bit of a lid on what I really want to talk about at family dinner and so I don't get to be completely myself there even though that's what I refer to at home but then I went to work and there's these women and they're brilliant and we're talking about reproductive rights and we're you know whatever it might be and then that becomes this um intellectual home this activist home and that's and that's a very different place from what home home is I think what struck me listening to both that play and the discussion was the idea about home and its connection to belonging and about home being a place where you can really be yourself. And I suppose the reality is that even if you get that, even if you achieve that sense of belonging, that actually for so many people, it's you have to then live with the anxiety of that being taken away from you. And let's face it, in this current climate, more people are going to have to live and manage that anxiety. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And um, and what comes across in that play and what I'm reminded of the times in the lockdown where I felt like some friends expressed this, there was a relaxingness about being stuck in your home for many people because it meant that every day you weren't going out there into the world, into the working world and having to deal with ableism, racism, sexism, all of those hierarchies. Actually, there was a relief in some ways of not having to go out in the world and face that kind of marginalisation and that kind of discrimination in the world. Because in lockdown, 
you could create a home that was free of all of that, where you choose your culture, you choose your input into all of that. And that feels really key to me for this character and that like for her, writing was a way for her to transcend that marginalization of being blind. And her home was an opportunity for her to transcend that. And yet, as you say, um, it was rented as accommodation and therefore it was insecure. So how else might you find belonging? It means battling all of those things in the outside world that make you feel other, that make you feel um, like you don't belong. I think as, you know, as someone who's a writer and who finds an, an enormous sense of belonging in my writing, I could really resonate with that. But also that for me, and I think for the character in the play, it was about writing, offering control and be able to control and create home. And we're going to listen now to the incredible poet and a really dear friend of mine, Marjorie Lotfi, who I always feel incredibly at home with, but also within her writing. So um, let me uh, introduce Marjorie Lotfi, who's going to read a series of poems all on the theme of home. I grew up as a child in Iran, um, in Tehran, during the revolution, not dissimilar to the revolution we're having just now. And throughout that childhood, things changed. And this first poem is about, um, is called Crossing the Street for Mother's Cigarettes. And it, it was written about a time when I couldn't leave, ho- she couldn't leave home. She's blonde and American and kind of stuck indoors, called Crossing the Street for Mother's Cigarettes. Crossing the street for mother's cigarettes, she is blonde, she is American, to the shop a block from home. I skip over shrapnel, the vestige of last night, the curfew and blackout, a clash I heard through my window, and wonder at the constitution of puddles, water, gasoline, blood. I have been taught to cross this road, busy with traffic, with care. Tehran drivers don't watch for small children. But this morning, the road is silent. I cross it, first looking both ways, then again, half expecting, half willing those cars I can almost still hear to reappear. So eventually, um, my family left Iran. Um, some of us left, and then my dad came out a bit later. And I moved to the U.S. and then moved to the U.K. And often when I can't sleep, one of the things I do, which I imagine most people do, is think about how things could have been different, what life might have been in all the homes that I could have lived in. And so this poem's next poem's really about that. It's called What You See in the Dark. What you see in the dark. The mist dipper, smaller, named after your younger self, not looked for and not seen since, burning bright. The furrowed fields of Ohio winter out the back window, the soil open to air, waiting for the drill. And each child you lost, as unnamed and unformed as sea glass, polished, opaque as light, only clear in watery dreams. Getting out of the city again, the school on fire, the walled blaze of road, open fists across the windscreen, every life you could have lived, dividing, subdividing, you there, hijabed and waiting for language, you there, foreigner, brown as the soil, you there, a keeper of words, you there, a stranger to yourself, awake in the night. Long before me, my great-great-great-grandmother was walked across the border from Azerbaijan into Iran during the um, Bolshevik uprising around 1917, and she she left behind a daughter who she never saw again. My father's memory of her is her pacing the garden, having lost her mind with grief. So in this poem called Hanum, I I give her her voice back. And um, it's really about home. 
to about how home is often people rather than a place. Chonum. I am not interested in Bolsheviks. Instead, it's the way light fell across my daughter's sleeping face. How she ate pomegranate, mouth brimming with tiny jewels. The way her nostrils would flare at the sight of mulberries. But when offered, tarofing she'd eat. Like swallows, we migrate. But there's no spring and no autumn in this place. Along with the samovar and the jannamaz, I was walked from Baku across the border, 150 miles, a distance I measured in the steps it would take to return. Now, in Tabriz, my grandson skips into the courtyard where I spend daylight wearing a path around the lilting fountain, speaking to the birds. He sits next to me under the mulberry tree and listens before asking if he can send a message back home too. And another grandmother in this next poem, my own grandmother, who moved to America eventually in her latter years. And I always wondered how she got on. Her English wasn't terribly strong and, and I, but I, you know, I was inspired by her bravery. So this poem's in her voice, Granddaughter, I Entered Your Mother's House, is its title. Granddaughter, I entered your mother's house as I entered every house, head covered, shoes off. I wore a black chador for all my outings. Your mother said, black is for funerals. What she didn't know was that I agreed. This funeral of a life, I'd been in mourning since my wedding. I entered my son's house as a stranger, reading each carpet as I might almond trees in bloom or bolts of cloth to determine yield, how much they might fetch. Your parents prospered, did not always smile. I placed my shoes at the front door, as is only proper. Bebachshid, they said. Beshin in jaw pointing to the largest lounge chair. I wanted to drop to the ground, fold my heels beneath me. I wanted to speak in the old language, the one your mother hadn't learned. But instead, I sank into the seat with a flick of the head saying, as if grateful, remembering how hard it is in this foreign land to keep holding the spine straight, to keep looking down. Last year, um, in Scotland, a place I've lived for over 15 years, I had the, the gift of being able to vote. And I dreamt about it over and over afterwards. Um, and so this next poem is really about my first time voting or the dream about voting in this place that I've made home. It's called Citizen. In my dream, it is always black and white, a line of people waiting, the stone building, fists of flyers, a glass door framed in steel. An old woman takes my name, checks it against her printout, her pencil slides through the letters of the registered. I wonder again if I've gotten it wrong. In my dream, she asked me to say it again, Lotfi, spell it out, before turning me away. In my dream, I push through the exit and walk home in rain to a house that isn't mine, in a country that isn't mine. I decided at some point along the last dozen years that it's sometimes it's the natural world that helps anchor us into a place rather than the people or the history. And so this next little poem is really about that, about how sometimes it's the things outside that save us, really. It's called keep, which I should say in American is to keep something for long. It's a kind of word we use, we keep. 
keep. There, in the already strawed grass of a long spring, the river beneath running low, slipping its stream below the shoulder, you leaned over as if to pluck the keys you'd dropped somewhere en route and brought up instead a posy of primrose, cupping their dairy butter faces, telling me their name. Here, each April, I spot the pale primrose in the shade of the trees behind the house, bring a handful in and strip the table bare, place them on the wood alone and sugar them, the paintbrush watching each waxy petal with crystals that glint the spring light, making their honey sweetness stretch another year a little longer. And then the last poem I'll read is about a crabapple tree that was found on a Hebridean island on its own. It's a mystery. Scientists don't know how it got there. And it has an incredibly pure DNA, apparently from the Ice Age. And I started thinking about that tree and how it got there and why it's still there. So I'll leave you with this poem called The Hebridean Crabapple. This I understand the instinct to cling at any cost to the place you are rooted, to see another season through, though the others seed elsewhere. Even in this sedentary act, you push the limit. Winter becomes summer, becomes winter, and you are steadfast on your crag, your outcrop. No one knows the shape of your limbs against a darkening sky. You question the need to grow against the wind. Despite what they say, there's no mystery in simply holding on. And what is home, if not the choice, over and over again, to stay? Having these conversations with my my mom and dad is really, what's home? I used to dismiss my dad um, having, he used to say that he, we've got a small house back in in the Punjab in, in Pakistan and I used to feel like you know every time you go there you've got to fix something because we're only there for like a month in a year you've always got to fix something why do you have that we can just stay in a hotel or we can stay with family and what he said was is that I've got to keep something there for you because I don't know when you'll stop being welcome here right and he's carried that his whole life he's in his late 80s now for him, I think it's really interesting. This is home, but not completely. That worry about when you're going to be told to leave or when things get just a little bit too rough and uncomfortable or there's there's experiences of racism rise again, like he had when he first got here. He felt he had to keep something in another place he calls home. For migrants, particularly for those who are seeking asylum and have had to leave violence, the idea of home is completely where is it? You've got to find it somewhere else. You've got to find it in a community that understands you, in a community that maybe looks like you, and that becomes home. So I remember um, being a lot more respectful of what it was that he was trying to maintain in Pakistan. You spoke there about the sense of community, of where people understand you, mm. where you can kind of relax into being, and you don't, you're, you're not constantly, you know, having to be vigilant for what people might think of you or how they might treat you or the discrimination or harm they might do you. Oh, Marjorie's poetry is just so beautiful and devastating and, and almost just cinematic in its quality that you just feel like, I feel like I'm really have been to those places, have been walked into those homes and, and that idea of the crabapple tree, but also that idea of home being a choice to stay over and over, that really resonated with me. And and then moving straight into that discussion group, which it just really struck me, the idea that throughout this episode, we have had so many different definitions of home and what home means and how to define it, how to understand it. It sort of struck me that maybe the definition that I've come to is the idea that home is a relief, that home is a place where you are seen and it's a relief from being unknown. Margie's just incredible work about all her poetry, but incredibly that work in which she talks about Iran and the leaving and the, and the longing for home. And so I suppose it just, it kind of led me to that, an idea that, that home is really 
like a promise. It's like a promise of being known and a promise of being truly and deeply known and, and for that to have some sense of forever and permanence or I suppose it's about rootedness, isn't it? I'm really struck by that image of the crab apple tree and, and home being a, the, the choice to choice to stay over and over again and then what Leslie Orr is saying just at the end in that discussion group that home is a community where people understand you and that's worth fighting for like that's worth finding that that feels worth embracing all of the shit that might come your way for like maybe that's why the crab apple tree is there because for whatever reason it's in a place where it feels like people understand it so it stays. And I think it's also, actually, in that piece that when Leslie All was speaking, it reminded me of House on the Hill, the extract from Homelands that Chitra read in our City episode. And I suppose it's that idea that also that holding on to your own community, but actually being open enough and allowing other communities to exist and allowing, realising the importance of people being known and being seen and allowing space for that if you're in a more privileged position and really beautiful both that poetry, but also that discussion, I felt. But here we are coming towards the end of our final kind of full episode of the season. Um, and before we welcome back Jen with more music, I wanted to remind you that we're looking for you to get involved with um, in our upcoming bonus episode. Yes, this may be the last full episodes of Coins Cast for the moment, but never fear, we'll be back in January with a special bonus episode. Um, we're getting together with some of our guests from across the series for our special roundtable discussion. We'll go over some of the themes, the questions, the ideas that have been really interesting or important. Um, we would just love to hear from you, the listeners, um, and we'd love for you to be part of that conversation. Absolutely. So if you have a question or response to anything that you've heard us talk about across the series, or if you just want to hear more on a particular topic, then please get in touch. You can send us a question, a comment or a statement via all the Stellar Coin social media channels, which is Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Or you can pop us an email via hello stellarquines.co.uk. So finally, uh, we welcome back Jen Butterworth to close out our final episode of this season of Quinescast. Here's a tune called Day 385, which I wrote on the 385th day of working from home during the pandemic lockdown. And I was feeling a little bit like the walls were closing in on me slightly by that point. I'm going to follow that with a song that I wrote called Lay Your Breath. And it's about my experience with the project Songs of Separation, um, traveling over to Egg and finding a new community both over there on the island and with the band themselves and just uh, trusting a process, opening up your heart and seeing what happens. And it was a, a beautiful experience. So here we go.
by one we step on board Sail for unfamiliar shores Unclosed and weary Surrounded by the sea Surrounded by the sea What a gorgeous way to finish off our final episode. Thank you so much to Jen for all of our contributors who've been part of this episode um, and for everyone who's supported us throughout the whole season, actually. And um, we really hope that you enjoyed the show. If you did, then please tell your pals. You can find us on all your favourite podcast listening platforms. If you're enjoying the podcast, um, you can also rate and review, which really helps us to make more episodes. It helps other people to find the show as well. So this is our last full episode in the current season. But as we said before, we'll be back in January with a special bonus episode. We really hope that you can join us then. This episode of Quine's Cast is curated and presented by Hannah Lavery and Caitlin Skinner, featuring original work by our contributors Jen Butterworth, Kerry Hudson, Marjorie Lotvey, Alison Woodhouse and Tim Barrow. The play Home by Alison Woodhouse and Tim Barrow was performed by the writers themselves. Editor Helena Rathai, project producer Barbie Lyon. The Stellar Quines team are General Manager Barbie Lyon, Associate Director of Engagement Beth Godfrey, Artistic Director and CEO Caitlin Skinner, Company Administrator and Young Quines Producer Erin McGee, Head of Audiences and Communications Sarah Marie Minnie. Quines Cast Image by Julia Francis Dugan. Quines Cast is possible because of the funding from Creative Scotland and support from our partners, the Travis Theatre, Edinburgh International Book Festival and Jupiter Rising at Jupiter Artland. 
If you want to keep up to date with all things Quines, please visit our website and sign up for the newsletter. We are Stellar Quines because of the many people who have supported us over the years. Next year, we'll see us reach our 30th year of asking for better representation and equality, and we still have a long way to go. We need your financial support and sponsorship to help us keep that work going. Please get in touch via stellarquines.co.uk if you can help support our future. 